Welcome to the podcast of Sozo Church. For more information about Sozo, please visit sozosmtx.com. Thank you. It is also Lisa Smothers birthday today. Steve and Lisa are awesome. They were here for worship, but they took off because it's her birthday, and Steve is teaching at Sozo Life tonight, and so I encourage them not to come at all and celebrate her birthday, but they just couldn't stay away from worship. I don't know what that says about my teaching, but I think I'm secure. (laughs) So as we were going into this new year, we're already deep into 2019. It feels like it should still be like 1999 to me, but... um, Lauren and I got some time away and just started praying about our, our priorities in life. And a lot of times it's, it's normal to have things that we say we value, but our schedules and our energies don't match the things that we value. Um, and so uh, one of the things that was really put on my heart by God was Eliza, our six-year-old, was her spiritual growth. And what I felt like God impressed on my heart was that for me and Lauren, for us as pastors, If the way she experiences God is only with our church family and not just with the two of us, then she's going to resent church and God. And so we decided, okay, we're going to like step it up in this area. Um, She'd given her life to Jesus about a year ago, and so we just felt like we were supposed to start pouring into her spiritually. So on the way to school, we're having spiritual conversations. We've been talking with her about hearing God's voice, um, and on uh, last Thursday or Friday, Thursday, we were driving to school and we were uh, worshiping to uh, that Tasha Cobb song that everybody's been singing. This is a move. I think it was that one. And, uh, and all of a sudden she says to me, somebody just said my name. And see, she had been so frustrated that she hadn't heard the voice of God. And she lit up and I said, Eliza, who was it? And she said, it was God. He said my name. And it like lit me up. I'm like, wow, that's so good. And so then, uh, you know, we, we went on and she just, she loves God and it, it's so awesome. But so one of the things that we're doing is we're like changing our value system in the way just that we do life is that we have on Tuesday nights, we have family church. And that's not you guys' church, that's just us as a family church. And so here's what we do. We put on some worship music and we dance like crazy. And it's hilarious. And here's my favorite part, though, is that usually family church on Tuesday nights is right after bath time. And so after bath time, Evelyn is running around in her diaper. And what happens is she starts worshiping and she gets Davidic in her worship. And she pops off her diaper and is dancing naked, a lot like David danced. And I love it because she just like jumps, 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 and she's just like dancing like crazy, and it is so much fun. And I I love abandoned worship. There is something about like worshiping. Like, you just don't care about anybody but the one that you're worshiping, that there's so much freedom in it. And I believe that's so much of the heart of David, is that he was sold out to God, and he could care less what everybody else thinks. 
And so as we look at David, I just want to kind of remind us of, of where we've been over these last six weeks. And we've talked about David being a man after the heart of God. And it's interesting that when Saul had basically, he, he had blown it and God said, hey, no longer am I going to have you and your family lead this nation of Israel, but I am looking for a man after my own heart. And he found David. Here's the interesting thing is that David, before he was ever anointed to be king, before anybody knew who he was, he was a man who was after God's very own heart. He didn't wait until he got a position. He didn't wait until he was in a situation where he was saying, God, if you don't come through, then I don't know what I'm going to do. What he decided was from the very beginning that he was going to be after the heart of God. And I believe that when we decide Wherever we are, it's not about what I can get from God. I'm not after the hand of God like Saul, but I'm after the heart of God like David. When we decide to live that way, then what happens is is that as we get promoted into places of authority, then the way that we have decided to follow God now becomes what the legacy of our influence looks like. And so, as a young man, I decided, hey, I'm going all in after God. And I wasn't waiting until I had a family or until I had a church family to lead in order to go after the heart of God. I realized that I needed the heart of God at a young age. And I, I think so often we wait until we're in a bind and then we pursue God. Let me say this to you. If you're in a bind, now's a great time to pursue God. You know, I was looking, thinking through Scripture, and people say stuff like, don't pursue a miracle, which sounds great unless you need a miracle, right? Because Jesus met people right where they were. And so if you need a miracle this morning, we're going to pray for miracles in a little bit, that God would come through on your behalf because he loves you. But here's what we don't want to do. We don't want to develop a lifestyle that's just chasing after the hand of God. We want to develop a lifestyle. Even if we see the revelation of the heart of God through the hand of God, we want to be a people who are after the heart of God. Amen? So then David faces Goliath, and, and we learned that maybe David wasn't a, an underdog because he had God behind him. And that sometimes giants don't always look like, they're not always everything that they look like. And you're facing giants. All of us are. When we get saved, we don't stop facing giants, right? We actually get equipped to have victory in the face of giants, to defeat giants. And so, so often we think that if I give my life to Jesus, then everything's going to be okay. But Jesus is actually working with you to be victorious in you, for you, and through you so that you can face the giants and be victorious for his glory. We talked a little bit about uh, David on the run from Saul and the effect of that on David's life and how David decided this, that I'm going to follow God no matter what. And even when it gets tough, he decided that he was following God. And that put him in the cave of Adullam. Steve called it the cave of preparation. And it was in that place that he learned two things that he learned how to strengthen himself in the Lord, 
Did you know that your spiritual growth is not primarily my responsibility as pastor or any of our other leaders in our church family? Your responsibility for your spiritual growth is yours primarily. That doesn't mean that you should, shouldn't be in places where you grow that cause you to thrive, but you have a responsibility to pursue the heart of God, to strengthen yourself in the Lord. Amen? And then he learned this. He lived this way, that he always inquired of the Lord. That he realized that I need the voice of God to lead me. And I just want to encourage you that you need the voice of God to lead you. You and I will probably never be the kings of nations, the queens of nations. However, you need the voice of God to lead you. And whatever influence and responsibility he's given you, you need the voice of God. And so David, after Saul dies, David becomes king. And he becomes king of Judah for about seven years. And so he's the king. He's been promised to be the king of Israel, of all of Israel. And he's got one tribe that's almost half the size of the whole nation. And he's king. Here's what's interesting. Sometimes God gives us pieces of the promise before we get the fullness of the promise. Will we learn how to be content with the pieces of the promise that God's giving, given us and at the same time remain full of faith that he's going to fulfill his promises? There is oftentimes a gap in what God has promised us and what we've experienced. And if we're willing to wait on him in faith, then he will fulfill all of his promises. In fact, we sing a song often that says, all of his promises are yes and amen in Jesus. It's God's desire to fulfill all of his promises to you. In fact, Ephesians 1.3 says this, that we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm in Christ Jesus. It's ours. And yet we're in a process as we live life through sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus, of realizing, possessing the promises of God that he already has for us. And so we pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And what we find is that David has now in chapter 5, he's become the king of all of Israel, the United Kingdom. And it's interesting, one of his very first moves as king we pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 6. So in five, he becomes king. In six, he, or in the rest of five, he defeats uh, the Philistines. And then it says, David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000 of them. And he went, uh, and he and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up the ark from there. The ark of God, which is called by the name, the being, the presence of God. The name of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. David did not see the presence of God as a secondary piece of his agenda as king. David realized that as he started with the presence of God personally as a shepherd boy tending his father's sheep, that he also, if he was going to be an effective king, then he was going to need the presence of God 
with him. And so he wasn't going to leave the ark just out there, but he wanted the ark with him because the ark was the place where the Shekinah glory, the manifest presence of God, rested. And he said, you know what I need? I need the presence of God if I'm going to rule. And so David and his men, they start celebrating every step of the way. It says they set the ark of God on a new cart and they brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, Uzzah and Aho, Ahio, it's kind of like Ohio, but Ahio, son of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio, Ohio, was walking in front of it, and David and all his men were celebrating with their might, with all their might, the Lord. And the castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. Here's the picture, right? You have David, who is the king of Israel, and he's made the presence of God the primary thing in his life. And so he decides that we're going to bring the ark back to Jerusalem, back to my city to be with me. And what he does is he throws a party the whole way there. He doesn't say, hey, I'm king, and so you guys go fetch it for me and bring it to me. But instead he says, hey, I'm going to be a part of this celebration. And he decides, hey, we're going to worship all out. It says that they worship God with all of their strength. They were exhausted by the time they were done worshiping. It sounds like Sozo Church. And they were all into the presence of God. And then something happens. The ark starts to wobble. So this man gets the idea probably that any of us would have. His name is Uzzah. And he reached out and he took hold of the ark because the oxen had stumbled. There's an interesting thing that happens here. Is that he falls down dead. Uzzah falls down dead, not because he's trying to defile the ark, not because he's trying uh, to, to take advantage of the ark, but he's actually trying to help the ark so that it doesn't fall. And yet he falls down dead. You and I read that from our perspective, and we say, well, that doesn't seem very fair or right, don't we? Like he was just trying to help. Here's the point of that story, though. The point of that story is not, was he trying to do what's good? And the point of the story was not, did God decide, hey, I'm going to strike this man down dead right here because of what he's trying to do. It had nothing to do with the decision of God. It had everything to do with the glory of God. Does that make sense? So you have a man, Uzzah, who is not clean before God, and he reaches out to touch the ark, and God wasn't thinking, hey, now I'm going to kill this guy. But it was actually the result of the glory of God there that Uzzah fell down dead. It was, it was, it's like if you have um, a power plant, and you decide that you're going to put your hands in like this huge source of power, it's not that the power plant decided that it was going to shock you and kill you. It's that the result of that power was not supposed to be on you, a human being. Here's what's interesting under the new covenant. 
that Jesus got us so clean and so pure and so holy, not by our own acts, but by his power, the power of his blood covenant with us, that now what Uzo reached out to touch just to help out, and he fell down dead, you and I are supposed to carry inside of us the Spirit of God in us. That's a big deal. And so they're terrified What are we doing? Maybe this is too much for us to handle. Have you ever thought that? Maybe God is just like too much for me. And so they're thinking, okay, this isn't a safe place, and so here's what we need to do. We just need to park the ark. That rhymes. (laughs) At what's-his-name's house? I don't think it rhymes. Where are we going? At Obed-Edom. Yeah, that does not rhyme with ark. Park the ark at Obed-Edom's. house. And so, I don't know what they're thinking. They're like, man, we don't really care about Obed-Edom. We think everybody's going to die as a result of this thing. It was killing the Philistines, by the way, sending like sickness on them. And so, they say, hey, Obed-Edom, he's expendable. And so, let's just park the ark there. And here's what they find out, is that Obed-Edom gets blessed ridiculously, like his whole life becomes fruitful because of the presence of God, and David realizes, hey, I want some of that. So we're not going to park the ark here any longer. Let's go ahead and bring it on in. And so they bring the ark on in to Jerusalem, and they're realizing this, that the presence of God is the source of incredible blessing in our lives. So 2 Samuel 6.14, it says, Then wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all of Israel were bringing the ark up from the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets. It's a big deal. They're pumped to have the presence of God with them. And it says, As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw... King David, leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in his heart. Can I tell you something? Your your worship is either enticing or it's offensive. And so often, we're put in a place where the response to God can either draw us in or push us away. When God is moving in such a way that people are responding to him and the temptation is either to judge it and once we judge it, we begin to go down a road of missing it or we embrace it and say, hey, I'm all in with this party. Michael couldn't handle that. She was more interested in the appearance that she and her husband, the king, had with the people that they were leading and she wanted nothing to do with being all out crazy for God. So we go on now to verse 20 to David's response. And it says, when David returned home to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked like Evelyn in full (laughs) view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. She's angry with them. How dare you do that? David's response is incredible. 
We see it in verse 22. He says, I will become more undignified than this. Amen? I will be humiliated in my own eyes by the slave girl you spoke of. I will be held in high honor. The presence of God demands a response. How are we going to respond? Are we going to respond with incredible celebration or are we going to respond with criticism? Well, that's not the way I would do it. You know, that wasn't very, very holy seeming. It didn't seem very religiously formal. Seems to be breaking the rules. You shouldn't be doing that. Or will we say, you know what, God, whatever you're doing, I'm all in. You know what God is always doing? The new thing. He's not doing the old thing. He's always doing the new thing. Which means that the responses that we have to his presence are going to look different than they did the last time around. Will we be willing to jump in on the new thing? Amen? I'm in. Are you in? David had found the one thing that was worth everything, the presence of God. And so he knew that whatever God was doing, he was all in. And as a result, as he got elevated, as he got promoted by God, what he valued was released in the lives of the people that he influenced. Fathers and mothers, will you value the presence of God in a way that it's released into the lives of your kids? Bosses, employers, teachers, community leaders, will you value the presence of God so much so that it is released into the lives of the people that you influence? David's response reminds me of this story in Luke chapter 7 where there's a woman, it's in Matthew and Mark also, there's a woman that has this bottle of perfume, this alabaster jar containing perfume that's worth about a year's wages. And she comes before Jesus and she breaks open the jar. She doesn't try to pull some sort of lid off. She says, I'm going all in. Everything I have, this thing of incredible value, I'm breaking it open on the feet of Jesus because he's worthy of it all. And the religious people standing around begin to criticize. And they begin to say, hey, don't you care about the poor? We could have taken that, we could have sold it, we could have helped so many people. And Jesus says what she did was meaningful, and it's going to go around the world as a testimony of her love. And then he says this, to whom much is given, or to whom much is forgiven, there is great praise, something like that. (laughs) That's what happens when I don't look up the verse. But her response of worship was in direct correlation to what she had received from God. And when we recognize what we receive, you see, we tend to think about, oh, well, you know, I wasn't as big of a sinner as this fella, and so my worship doesn't have to be as crazy. And by the way, I'm not talking about simply an outward expression, but an internal position of your heart towards God. And so I don't really need to worship like them, because they really blew it, and I just, you know, 
I just said a few white lies and, you know, cheated on my test in second grade. And so it's not that big of a deal. But when we start to recognize that what Jesus did for us has nothing to do with the magnitude of our sin and everything to do with bridging the gap of relationship we had with him, we start to recognize, hey, my life is worth being all in with him because he is all in with me. So David knew what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, that you seek first the king and his kingdom and everything else will be taken care of. He trusted God. And so here's what he does next. He says, hey, we're doing things a little bit differently than the tent of Moses. We're going to establish a tent that everybody gets access to, and we're going into it all the time. And so what he decides that he's going to do is he gets 288 prophetic singers and 4,000 musicians, and they begin to minister to the Lord. They minister to the Lord. Did you know that your worship actually ministers to the heart of God? That's actually the whole point of worship. The whole point of worship is not, hey, how do I get like the the really good, you know, goosebumps, whatever. The whole point of worship is that I minister to the heart of God. I was telling a a, a mentor one time, I said, man, I'm really enjoying worship right now. He said, what are you doing that for? He said, that's not for you. And I love, I think it's okay to enjoy worship. I'm not criticizing that. But here's what I am saying. That whether or not you enjoy it, it's really not the point. The point is, are we ministering to the heart of God? Are we blessing the heart of God? Here's what's incredible with that idea, is that my worship actually has an impact on the creator of the universe, the one who was never created. My worship has an impact on him. Your worship has an impact on God. You dancing in your room like crazy when nobody else is watching impacts the heart of God. It blesses him. It honors him. It pours out love and adoration on him. The tent of David that was established for this season until the temple of Solomon was built was a prophetic picture for what the church looks like. Amos prophesies it, then James at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, he calls it up and he says, what God is doing, the reason why the Gentiles should have access to God without going through Judaism is because what God is doing right now is he is restoring the tent of David where everybody gets direct access to God. Where you don't have to work, you don't have to go through rules and rituals, you just get to come straight before God and have total access to him that we all get to be a people of his presence, that we all get to minister to God, that there's no more in and out. It's all of us, all in. Amen? Amen. David, recognizing the presence of God, begins to write things like this. Psalm 27, 4, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Psalm 84.10, he says, one day in your courts is better than thousands elsewhere. Did you know that's the invitation that we have in Jesus? That's the good news is that we get to live our lives in the presence of God. I don't have to wait for a church service to get there. I don't have to wait for the band to crank up some music. I get to live in the presence of God, and so do you because of Jesus. 
Go with me real quick. We're going to look at one more story on David's leadership. We could do this for years. The stuff about David is phenomenal. But go with me to chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. This is one of the most um, known stories about David. And it starts off this way in verse 1. It says, in the spring, we're talking about David and Bathsheba, when David really blew it big. It says, in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. Here's what that implies is that when kings go out to war, David stayed home. Everybody else is going to war, and David's staying home. Here's the danger of leadership. With leadership always comes an element of privilege because it's required to carry out the responsibility that you have. In whatever realm you have leadership in, wherever your influence is. The danger of leadership is that you use your privilege to arrange for your own comfort. And in doing so, that you abdicate your authority and your responsibility to God and the people that you have influence with. And that's the first thing that we see that David has done wrong. So all of his men are gone out to war, and David stays home, arranging for his privilege. And he goes up to the rooftop of his palace. Now, we think probably of like a medieval palace, but in those days it would have probably been, the whole city would have been about 15 acres, and David probably would have had a house that was maybe two or three stories high, which would have been the tallest building in the place, uh, in the, in the uh, gates of the city. And, and so he goes out to his roof, and he looks out, and he sees this beautiful woman. and She doesn't have any clothes on. And she catches his eye, and he says, I am the king, I can do what I want, and so I want that woman. Again, arranging, using his privilege to, to arrange for his own comfort. Here's the interesting thing about Bathsheba. We tend to think that Bathsheba is innocent in this deal. But the truth is, they're so close together, one uh, historian says this, uh, Kenneth Bailey says that uh, in a traditional Middle Eastern village like Jerusalem would have been in that day, only powerful people had a second or third floor and couldn't look down on and see into the na- their neighbors' homes, uh, walled courtyards and windows. David's Jerusalem was small, only 12 to 15 acres, all of it crowded. The space between Bathsheba's house and the palace could not have been more than 20 feet away. They had incredible um, modesty in those days. And so it would not have been normal for Bathsheba to be exposing herself where anybody could see, and she would have known what the lines of sight would have been. She chose to put herself in that place as a target for King David. She knew exactly what she was doing. And she thought that she could get away with it because her husband was off at war. So often the sin that we think is secret that nobody will find out about becomes the most costly in our lives. So David sends his messenger. She comes up. She gets him, or he gets her pregnant. And David's freaking out now because he's supposed to be everybody's hero, the king, right? And now he's blown it big. And so he, he starts going up, going into to cover-up mode. He says, well, let me get 
Uriah home, this woman's husband, and, and, and I'll get them to sleep together, and that way it'll be a cover-up, right? And we'll, Uriah has so much dignity that he's not going to participate in the cover-up. So he won't even go home to be with his wife. David even gets him drunk, and he still won't go. He, and then he responds in this way. Verse 11, he says, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to, that, to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? Surely, as you live, I will not do such a thing. There's an incredible key for us there, but we'll come back to it. So here's what he does. He won't, Uriah won't participate, and so David sends him with a letter that's actually his own death warrant. Puts him in the front of the, the military lines, and then they draw back so that Uriah is killed and David can complete his cover-up. He starts off by arranging for his privilege, and soon he's committed adultery, and he's had a man killed that he's responsible for. Now, we tend to think about the rules in situations like that. When we think about sin, we think, well, he, he shouldn't have broke the rules, right? But we, we miss the point. In verse 11, it says this. It says, the ark of the Lord is in the battlefield. Here's David, a man who's been after God's own heart. He says, one day in your presence, God, is better than a thousand elsewhere. And yet when the ark of the Lord carrying the presence of God goes out, David takes his eyes off the presence of God. And it's not too long after taking your eyes off of the presence of God that you can fall into all sorts of ridiculous sin. You see, the, the key to overcoming sin is not try harder, and it's not set better boundaries. Those things aren't bad in and of themselves, but they are secondary to keeping your eyes fixed on the presence of God. That's why Paul writes to the church in Galatians, he says that if you walk by the Spirit, you won't satisfy the desires of the flesh. You see, our whole purpose as a people of God is that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, and as soon as David took his eyes off the presence of God, he had set himself up for massive failure. Whenever we take our eyes off of God, we're already missing it. You see, we miss this. We think that sin is breaking the rules. Sin is not breaking the rules. Sin is relational. Far before there were ever the Ten Commandments, sin still existed. So sin, though it can be legal, is not just a legal thing, it's a relational thing. What Adam and Eve did is that they stepped back from a trusting relationship with God. And in doing so, they missed the heart of God and the goodness of God. You see, we tend to think that obedience is the opposite of sin. But actually, obedience is the fruit of faith. And faith is the opposite of sin. Now, we, we like to think of faith as this, like, I'm going to, like, pray really hard and, like, just, like, force this belief thing. But faith is best understood as a relational word. It's trust in God. It's walking in relational connection with him. And so as soon as David had taken his eyes off of God, and as soon as he had stopped walking in faith, he opened him up, himself up for massive failure. And I'd like to suggest to you that the greatest key to your victory is intimacy with God. Amen. The truth is, is that it's impossible to sin 
while walking with God. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you won't ever sin, and if you sin, then you've, you've blown it, and you, you don't get to walk with God. That's not what I'm saying. You're the righteousness of Christ, so that's not true. But here's what I am saying, is that it's impossible to have your eyes fixed on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, and, and start living in a ridiculous life of sin. The, the greatest problem that we have is not the things that we do, but when we start taking our eyes off of Jesus, we've already lost. So everything I do becomes an opportunity for my gaze to be fixed on Jesus. I don't care what you're doing. You're mowing your grass. You're taking out the trash. You're cleaning sewers. You're teaching. Whatever it is you do, you look at whatever's ahead of you. You look at it through the lens of Jesus. I'm going to see Jesus no matter what I do. And when we start to do that, we recognize that his presence is our priority. Amen? So this morning, ministry team, you guys can come on up, and band, you all can come on up. And What we're going to do is we're just going to finish with a, a time of ministry before we go out for baptisms. And I really feel like this morning that God wants to meet you, that, he, that he's actually set an appointment to be with you. And so this morning, if, if you're in a place, maybe everything seems fine, but you just want more of God, I just invite you to come forward and receive just let somebody pray for you that you would be filled with the, the Spirit of God in the same way that the temple was filled with the glory of God in Solomon's day. If you've never given your life to Jesus, now would be a great time. This team would love to pray with you. And our prayer team has been praying for some different things. And this morning, they really, it's been on their heart a few things that they, they're something that God wants to, to deal with and bring healing to. and So I'm just going to read those off. And if this is you, if, one, if you identify with one of these things, then what I want to ask you to do is just come forward for prayer and let them pray for you. If you're dealing with something that's not in this list, God still wants to deal with you. He still wants to love on you. He still wants to bring healing to you. But here's what they feel like God is saying. Somebody with right foot issues, somebody with brain issues, somebody with colon problems, somebody wrestling with depression and heaviness of heart, somebody with actual physical heart circulatory issues, somebody is probably multiple that you just need joy. You just need God to just fill you with joy. Another person wrestling with business decisions and, and just feeling like you're not sure what to do and God wants to, to speak to you. And the word they had for you is that he's actually given you the okay to step into it. Two more, somebody with chronic sinus, sinus blockage, and somebody else that's battling cancer. Let me pray for us. God, we love you. We thank you that you love us and that you are with us. So Lord, we just open up this time to receive from you because you're for us. God, I thank you that when we ask for you that you desire to along with yourself give us all good things that your heart is to bless us and so Lord I just pray uh, for the courage just to step forward and receive this morning Lord we thank you for what you have for us we thank you Lord for David an example of what it looks like to pursue your heart Lord make us like David all in for you in Jesus name